Hi, and welcome to Loops, the podcast brought to you by Caribou Projects. My name is Bryony Gillard, and I'm an artist living in Bristol. For the past few years, I've been entangled with seaweed. It all started when I was commissioned by the Royal Albert Memorial Museum and Art Gallery in Exeter in 2019 to create a new work in response to their collections. Scrolling through their object database, I became bewitched by their seaweed archive, sheets of delicately pressed and dried specimens, reds, greens, browns, vivid in colour, but flat, fragile and bristle, almost disappearing like ghostly watercolour drawings into mottled paper. After some initial research, I noticed that most of the seaweeds were collected by women. Dating from the mid-19th to the early 20th century, each specimen bears the collector's name in pencil, alongside the collection date, location and Latin identification. Mrs Griffiths, Miss Cutler, Miss Mills, Miss Hutchins, Miss Cresswell. The act of collecting and pressing seaweeds, otherwise known as seaweeding, was considered a gendered hobby and a creative pastime of little importance. However, many of the collectors made a significant contribution to marine botany, meticulously recording specimens and sharing their findings generously with the male scientific community, as they were unable to publish research under their own names. My encounters with the seaweed collection were the start of a fascination which would lead me down many different but interconnected paths. The more I looked, the more links between seaweed and gender I noticed. The more I researched its biology, the more I realised how complex and beguiling seaweeds are, and how much we can learn from them about multi-species futures and ecologies of care. It filters, shelters, nourishes and sustains ecologies, coastlines, communities and industries. In the past few decades, seaweed and algae have entered mainstream discourse around climate change in both positive and negative lights. Due to rising sea temperatures and changing balances in the oceans, toxic blue-green algae blooms, seaweed's cousin, threaten entire ecosystems absorbing sunlight and further heating the oceans. Tides of sargassum, a brown leafy seaweed, off the coast of Barbados, are strangling sea life and damaging small-scale fishing industries, growing in size each year, covering beaches and offending tourists' noses. Both instances are described in Western media as invasions. Both are indigenous to the areas mentioned and have only become a large-scale problem because of human-induced climate change. On the other hand, seaweed is often heralded as a wonder tool to mitigate global warming, a way of feeding and powering economies, and to even sequester or sink carbon, although this is still only possible in theory and not in practice. Seaweed has life-giving, utopian and science-fictional qualities that have been known to indigenous communities for thousands of years. But there is also the very real potential for seaweed to be co-opted by late capitalism to enable violent processes of extraction and impression to continue. For this podcast, I had the privilege of interviewing three people who have found their lives or research intertwined with seaweed. Through the lens of environmental justice, marine biology, community activism and media theory, 
These conversations explore Seaweed's slippery relationship to place, identity, community and responsibility. My name is Giovanna DiCiro and I'm a professor of environmental studies at Swarthmore College. Swarthmore is a liberal arts college located in southeastern Pennsylvania, just outside the city of Philadelphia. My research, teaching, and activism focus on the theories and histories and movements of environmental and climate justice. And a very important part of my, um, what I would call my engaged scholarship is partnering with local environmental justice organizations and building uh, practices of reciprocity and collaboration across diverse communities, um, diverse lived experiences, and also um, diverse visions for living together and and trying to uh, co-produce the practices of of collaborative survival um, in these difficult times on Earth. So um, I didn't set out uh, to study seaweed, although I was very interested in the marine environment in the ocean. And like any uh, red-blooded, white, middle-class American environmentalist uh, from the early 70s, um, sort of growing up in in the early phases of the U.S. environmental movement, I was interested in saving the whales and the dolphins and protecting the marine environment and um, loving the, the ocean. And so as an undergraduate, when I went to college um, at the University of California in Santa Cruz, I, um, I was excited about becoming a marine biologist and I went to... Uh, meet with one of my professors, um, and he was a very well-known specialist in in marine mammals, and so I went to talk to him. I was excited, and I I said something to the effect that I was really interested in majoring in, in marine biology because I love the ocean, and then he quickly disabused me of that, um, perspective and told me that science has nothing to do with love. And uh, so that hit me pretty hard. Uh, It sort of threw cold water on my notions about becoming a a marine scientist. Uh, I think that that there was a pretty pretty explicit gendered perspective uh, in sort of trying to de-link emotions like love with the hard uh, uh, realities of science. and so that, of course, also was something that, that affected me as a young woman, um, interested in going into the sciences. And, um, but I persisted. I persisted in, in, in biology and then somehow came across this course that was at the time, it wouldn't be called this now, but at the time it was called uh, uh, Introduction to the Lower Plants. But it, it was, again, this sort of framing of the, this is not the study of the amazing uh, mammals uh, and higher, uh, higher organisms, but this was the study of the lower plants. And, of course, it was taught by two 
women um, professors. Uh, but so we were studying, you know, seaweed and algae and fungi and bryophytes and mosses and lichens. And and all of this was very interesting to me. I didn't realize how how interesting sort of studying the understory or the underwater or the underground creatures and systems would be uh, to me. Uh, but the thing that I think also sort of uh, was important in that was that there were two women uh, professors who I was, uh, who uh, were teaching the course. And um, so there was something about uh, you know, identity and identity politics that came into those early years of my becoming a marine biologist. So I later took the, I, I you know, one of the professors was was a phycologist, which is the study of algae. And so I took her her course on phycology, and then I just kept taking courses, and I and I became fascinated with, um, with learning about these organisms, their ecology, their biology, their taxonomy. Um, But I also became part of an all-female lab as an undergraduate. So the female professor, the female graduate students, and it was a uh, social environment, you know, a collective environment that worked really well together. And I would later learn, the the, uh, professor told me that she would often selectively choose female graduate students because of the uh, tendencies that the the lab was more collaborative, and um, and people sort of looked out after each other. It was less uh, about competition and who's you know who's doing the uh, most cutting edge research. So that that was an early experience that. Um, uh, you know that that made me bring together my interest in seaweed and my interest in doing collaborative, collective group work to you know uh, uh, you know w- within an academic setting. I-, I think that that was sort of my the start, even though I wouldn't have called it that at that point of the seaweed sisterhood, and I learned that from the uh, women scientists um, who, who I, I was working with. I, I ended up uh, becoming a research assistant with this uh, professor at UC Santa Cruz, and uh, we, went, uh, we went on many, many different research um, trips, including... Uh, to meet up with Isabella Abbott, Professor Isabella Abbott, uh, who is a professor at Stanford University. Um, she was a uh, one of the world-known um, specialists in, um, in, in both Hawaiian and Pacific Coast seaweed. She was uh, uh, born in Hawaii from um, a Hawaiian mother and a Chinese father. Uh, she grew up learning about the importance of seaweed, particularly from women, uh, because seaweed, uh, the knowledge of seaweed um, was um, was sort of the domain of women in, in Hawaii. And uh, so when she came to the United States, or, came, or rather when she came to California, to the mainland, um, 
and started studying Pacific Coast seaweed um, at Stanford, she uh, was extremely well-known. And we used to go down to Monterey Bay and do collecting trips with her and hear about the stories of of seaweed. So so the, this sort of uh, seaweed sisterhood just kept growing uh, in my mind. It felt like it was... Um, it felt like it was um, sort of the my calling in many ways. Uh, my name is Melody Chu. I am associate professor of English uh, at UC Santa Barbara. My encounters with seaweed started a very long time ago, just as a child growing up in in San Diego. So I would go with my family to the beach on the weekends. And so there would be these huge piles of seaweed that were entirely dried out, full of flies. Uh, although if you found a fresh one, then um, the giant kelp has these bladders that you can pop like bubble wrap. And so as a child, it used to be really fun just to go step on these um, and try to try to pop them all over the place. So there is sort of seaweed was always sort of part of the, the background um, when I when I was growing up, but I didn't think of it at all as a, as a you know, research topic or anything. This came decades later um, after lots of twists and turns through um, thinking about uh, science fiction, literature, uh, science, uh, science and art in different ways. Um, and so it wasn't until I found uh, myself as a new assistant professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, that one of my students uh, tipped me off to this uh, campus archive of dried seaweed specimens so uh, this was in 2016, and I, I wandered over to this this uh, this building. And as someone who studies both science fiction but also uh, oceans and media studies, I, I came to this and thought to myself, "Oh my goodness, this is across the hall from a library, and it has a formal similarity because here we have all these stacked folders of pressed seaweeds that look exactly like the pages across the hall, except their orientation's different. Instead of being stacked." Um, sort of like a bookshelf, they're all um, piled on top of each other gently across a few other shelves. And they're huge too. They're in these giant manila sort of folders that you can open. And sometimes the seaweed falls off the paper. So you have to be a little bit delicate with them. And uh, one of the curators um, was telling me that you have to be a uh, sort of careful, like sometimes, even though each of these are barcoded to be a particular species, they always have hitchhikers on them too. So the white sort of powder dust that was on them might be some kind of diatom, or uh, sometimes there's a uh, like a parasitic uh, seaweed that's also on top of the main seaweed. So this for me raised a lot of really interesting questions around how you even isolate for species um, and how these. Uh, multi-species relations even find themselves onto the page of something that's literally barcoded as a particular uh, specimen of, uh, of seaweed. So lots of bells were set off and I thought to myself, oh, this is, this is going to be an interesting um, uh, dive into a particular aspect of ocean science um, that might have a lot to say um, in relation to contemporary conversations about multi-species relations, ecology, media, um, and uh, preservation data, like just, just lots of, lots of connections. 
Um, my name is Danny Abelhauer and I am a lecturer in applied performance, contemporary applied performance, at the University of Leeds. And I'm one of the co-directors of Pebble, or Plant Ecology Beyond Land. And the other director is Christian Berger. So I suppose the way that, the, that Christian and I um, came around to the seaweed project was that we've both done a lot of community work in Manchester, inner city Manchester, where we live in an area called Mossside. And we've both been involved in particularly things like community gardening and growing projects and um, sort of play spaces, I suppose. Then sometime a few years ago, um, Christian actually grew up in Swansea and grew up surfing. And I got into surfing as well through him. Um, but we've also both skateboarders, which kind of has a link to surfing into the sea as well. And so the, the sea is something that is relatively close to both of us. And Christian started reading about or, or heard about some, somewhere or other um, that seaweed was a kind of becoming a really interesting new sector for food production and bioplastics and also carbon sequestration. And we were both concerned about the climate crisis um, at this time and really wanted or recognised the need to pivot towards the climate crisis in some way and to use our skills towards something that would help. And this idea with seaweed just emerged, I suppose, um, and we both were really sort of quite excited and interested in it because um, I suppose as surfers you're kind of like often surrounded by seaweed in the water and there's so much of it on the British Isles, it's very present and yeah, we were just kind of intrigued by it. And so when we started to explore how we could, like, I guess, enter into this sector, we really noticed that, um, first of all, within Wales anyway, it's not very well established, the, the seaweed food sector. There's not that many seaweed farms. And so we, um, we were looking at what the sector needs to grow. And one of the things that we noticed was that there's, there's currently little um, facilities for sea farmers to get access to seeded lime, seaweed seeded lime. And so um, Christian has more of a science background than I, than I do. So he did a PhD in physics and is used to working in labs. So he, he set up a lab in our loft space in Manchester and we got some seawater and he started putting together some experiments to see if we could actually get some uh, seaweed to seed. And we read lots of sort of papers about it and worked out the, the, the way to do it. And that was relatively successful. And off the back of those sort of really crazy DIY experiments in the loft, we got some funding through um, Innovate UK to actually set up a hatchery and to sort of make this a more formalised lab. And we created um, a little facility um, on the coast at Penmon Point, which is in... Anglesey, on Anglesey, North Wales, in order to um, to do this, and we've so since then we've been we've, we've started supplying seeded lime, particularly to a 
a uh, community benefit company, Sea Farmer, called Carrymore, who's based in Pembrokeshire. And because Christian's background is also in um, technolo technological innovation um, and engineering, we also looked at some of the um, water quality monitoring equipment and all those types of equipment that might be needed by a sea farm and how we could make those really cheap. And so we, we've, we've also got some monitoring equipment that we also put out on that particular sea farm and we have also worked with some other organisations to, to sort of determine the best place for a seaweed farm to go, but also to monitor environmental effects, which is really integral to getting licences. And then I guess the you're probably thinking, what does that have to do with me in performance? <laughs> um, and so one of the things we also noticed when we started exploring the sector was that obviously quite a lot of people don't currently eat seaweed in Britain. So there's a need to kind of connect people to seaweed and to help people gain an understanding of, of it as a protein-rich source, as something that's really useful for the environment, but also to connect people more to the ocean because obviously the ocean is a huge part of our ecosystem. Um, and so I recognised that there was an opportunity for me to use my skills in applied performance and theatre making and um, dance and movement practice to engage with communities um, to explore some of those ideas as well. And that's really what we wanted to do from the outset was to create a company. We're a community interest company um, that has a sort of science and art focus. So our facility at Penmon Point, it's two shipping containers and then like a sort of flat area in the middle. But we always envisaged it as both like a, a scientific hatchery, but also like a community hatchery in the sense that like artists and creatives and craftspeople from the local area could come and use that space as well. They're interesting because they're so biologically and taxonomically complex and diverse. And that includes the, the fact that their life history is, um, is essentially based on an, an, an alternation of generations and sometimes three generations. And, um, and part of, or one um, generation, one or two of these generations are invisible or microscopic. And um, the algae, particularly the um, red algae, the, the red seaweed, um, have very complex sexual and asexual reproduction. Also, uh, you know, they're, they're, there's a sense of mystery and interest about them because uh, they're not always easy to study. Um, you have to make sure that the tides are right. You have to make sure the weather cooperates. They seem sort of more elusive and, um, and just less well noticed. It's one of the, the reasons that I, I like um, the anthropologist Anat Singh's no notion of, of the arts of noticing. So, so, and I would say the arts and sciences of noticing. So, you know, what, what is it that opens up the um, screen for us, you know, or the, that sort of vision? Um, what do we see and what do we not see? And, you know, uh, again, in this shift towards 
asking more questions about the unseen, the understory, the underground, um, the, the, uh, some theorists have come up with, with the idea of um, plant blindness that uh, we don't, that, that at least in Western worldviews, there's a certain not noticing or blindness. I, I prefer not to use that ableist term, uh, but, you know, the arts or the cultures of not noticing. Um, and, and, and I think that there are tr- transformations happening in, in our modes of thinking. Uh, 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 clearly, the um, biological sciences have moved into new thinking about the um the underdogs the uh the um organisms that sort of behind the scenes are doing all of the all of the care work i would say so uh there's a shift towards you know the, the idea of the so-called mutualistic consortia that we are now starting to or, uh, you know, value more. And the mutualistic consortia, the symbiotic, the grand symbiotic systems and relationships, including algae and uh, and fungi and, you know, and their interconnections uh, on in land, you know, in terrestrial environments with the mycorrhizal networks underground and the, and the you know, great coral holobionts and and uh, and the, certainly the microbiome in our in our guts and and the in the guts of all animals. So that sort of recognition of the of the of the consistent care work that's happening um, that is behind the scenes and undervalued and at least again undervalued in Western thinking. Certainly, indigenous cultures have had lots of of a sense of the importance of these relationships. But I, I think that there are transformations happening and 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 part of it, I think is is very much the um, shifts uh, uh, in terms of um, the um, demographics of who 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 are who are in the sciences now. And so different kinds of questions. Are being asked, um, and and I think that um, we're seeing sort of, you know, one one of the things that really interested me. I, I don't know if this is a tangent, but I, I see it as connected. Later in my in my academic and political life, I started to see the connections between my interest in sh- shifting the focus or the interest towards these. Um, these, you know, mutualistic consortia or parliaments of, of, of multi-species relationships that are sort of happening uh, constantly, producing oxygen, fixing carbon, fixing nitrogen, support systems, uh, producing food, uh, cleaning up or detoxifying the, the environment. They, this is all sort of what feminists have called for generations the notion of social reproduction, and that is the care work that is largely done by women that is 
undervalued, unrecognized, and unremunerated, um, but it's the work that is necessary. The feeding, the nurturing, the health care, the growing food, the, you know, cleaning, uh, cooking, etc., that makes all life possible. And so I, you know, one of the things in my interest and my sort of leaning towards the uh, emergent field of ecofeminism in, in the in the 80s and 90s was actually seeing these connections between that invisible yet absolutely at the center of the universe necessity for this care work to be happening. But where I've seen science fiction come up is um, in actually questions of uh, taxonomy. So Kathy Ann Miller, who's the curator at UC Berkeley, um, UC Berkeley Seaweed Collection, uh, she has this wonderful way of um, encouraging budding taxonomists to think like a seaweed. And what it means to think like a seaweed for her is, is take into consideration, what's that seaweed going through where, where it held on to something? So what are the different factors? How deep is it? What are the light conditions? Um, what's the wave action? All these factors uh, influence um, influence morphology. And one of the cool, cool things about seaweeds is you can get very, very different forms within the same species. So they're actually quite plastic um, depending on uh, the conditions where the uh, small, you know, seaweed um, sporophyte or gametophyte just decides to, to lodge and to, and to grow. Different um, sort of choice edible seaweed species uh, pop up in different cuisines around the world. So for example, um, laver um, in, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, sort of Northern European context um, is also the same seaweed used in sushi to make uh, nori. Um, but then that too is used in different kinds of, um, uh, can be in the dry form that way or in soups. Um, and so if you parse questions about, you could parse questions about seaweed either around countries, but I think that's a little limiting. You could parse them around ocean basins, so that would mean Atlantic Pacific, or another way is to parse them around um, ocean temperatures. So thinking about how a study or questions about seaweed can move um, depending on the temperature of the waters that allow certain seaweed species to thrive. So I think uh, about also the way that the giant kelp, which is such a keystone species here in California, um, also grows really well in South Africa um, and also in, I, I think, the Australasia um, area as well, so sort of um, Tasmania. So there's, um, I guess you could say seaweeds have a sort of patchy kinship network if we want to borrow the patchiness that comes up a lot with anthropologists like Anna Singh and, and think about how uh, that patchiness also determines um, where where one's interest in seaweeds might go as a scholar or as an artist or as um, um, someone asking questions. So I guess that, you know, we talked about seaweeds being a little disobedient earlier. I would say that they also are disobedient in terms of how they disrespect national boundaries. Um, so they really do get us to think not only beyond the terrestrial as a, as a given area to the ocean, but then once you go to the ocean, one's whole sense of borders needs to change because of what 
organisms um, basically find comfortable at the level of the body. So, um, so in that way, yeah, I think seaweeds are also useful for uh, maybe untraining us to um, uh, reach for the kind of boundaries or delineations that we um, we might we might otherwise. And so, temperature is is a big part of this for the for the seaweeds. I think that, well, so seaweed is is a really interesting food source and material. And so there's, and there's lots of reasons to, to farm seaweed and to work with seaweed within the kind of climate emergency, particularly because of issues like soil erosion and the need to um, shift away from using agricultural land to sort of other ways of producing food and so so that like engaging with the sea for that reason is important um but also because the the ways in which we get protein now which are kind of animal focused and like ter terrestrial animal focused um cause a lot of problems because of um ni nitrogen le leaching into the sea seaweed is a really is has got a, a a protein profile that's similar to legumes so it's it's definitely something that can contribute to our diets in a really positive way and it's very low fat i think one of the other really important things about seaweed is its potential to sequester carbon but it does have to be buried in the deep ocean which is um not very easy to uh, monitor or achieve i suppose but um it's very highly absorbing of of um, co2 and um using seaweed for bioplastics is also really popular and really important and for biofuel fuel as well so seaweed has a lot of potential to contribute to future food security uh, and also if we're getting um if we're kind of um farming seaweed on this coast, we're reducing the the travel and um, of food from East Asia, for example, um, which is where most of the seaweed comes from. Um, yeah, and in terms of communities, um, you know, coastal communities have been suffering such decline, economic declines in in recent years, and the, there's a need to kind of um, support coastal communities really especially because they're extremely likely to suffer from the effects of climate change as well in terms of uh, strange weather and flooding and so on. Um, and so I think that it's important to, for actually for this relationship between inner cities um, where the idea of the sea might just be very distant, of course, and coastal communities to kind of create a little bit more of a connection and understanding and um, like a symbiotic relationship. And then also something as well that, that you know, when we were talking about earlier, which is um, the idea of, I think, resurrecting the heritage of these kinds of um, food um, sources as well. You know, whales, I mean, eating lava bread is, is traditional to whales. Uh, and dulse is traditional, I think, much more to Ireland, but is also traditional within Wales. And um, I'm kind of reconnecting people with that history, I think, because it's um, it's a really fascinating history. And, um, and it's something that was about people 
getting the most out of the the sea, not just sort of from fishing, but also from using plants in the sea to eat. And I think that that's, and it's just, um, I think it's an important story to keep alive. I guess the seaweeds open up what we didn't maybe know um, about uh, stories um, of media, um, gender, labor in the past, but then they also hopefully open up um, different possibilities going, going forward. I find myself also thinking a lot about the way seaweeds um, are tied into forms of commodification, um, even as they're also the subjects of artwork and also the subjects of this um, uh, more utopian thinking about um, different kinds of possibility. Um, and the place I find myself in right now is running up against the question uh, about uh, how these how these stories um, travel and where they've run up against different kinds of blocks, um, specifically in translation between East Asian um, cultures and the West. Um, so I recently had a chance to sit down and um, read some of the writings of uh, C.K. Tseng, um, who was this uh, Chinese psychologist who was um, who found himself stuck at Scripps Institution of Oceanography back in uh, during World War II. And he got uh, sort of conscripted into this project researching agar. And he's one of the only figures um, I found, um, and again, this is just the beginning of a project, um, him and also uh, uh, Isabella Iona Abbott from Hawaii, who've been really interesting translators between uh, the East and West, so to speak, um, because otherwise there have been so many, so many blocks and lacks uh, a lack of communication or um, even a lack of willingness to uh, initiate exchanges of knowledge, um, particularly from the West. You know, not not you know attempting to um, overcome the language barrier. Uh, yeah, just to see what exchange of knowledge is possible with uh, with the seaweeds, um, and so this is um, this is on my mind a lot as uh, as I look into sustainable eating because of course seaweeds have been a huge staple of East Asian cuisine for for a long long time. You know, one of my interests in the environmental justice movement was that it raise questions. Uh, the, the, the activists in the environmental justice movement, who are largely low-income women of color, um, were acting as, you know, you know to, to um, you know, noticing and recognizing the health of their children, the, the, the uh, taste of the plants that were growing in, in contaminated soil, the taste of the water that was polluted the smells that would come out of the of the factories that they were living next to and you know and watching their children get ill and their community members get ill they started to to see that um the the health of of the air the water the soil and the health of the local community um are deeply connected they aren't separate the way mainstream environmentalism would sort of categorically separate uh, human the the human built world from from nature from the natural world and um, and that in order for the health of the community and the health of children to uh, um, be protected 
they also had to fight to protect the air and the water and the land. So that idea of the necessity for collective and community um, engagement to protect the environment um, and, you know, what what many women environmental justice activists uh, call community mothering and, and the third shift of community mo- mothers. So the third shift becomes that work that you do after your first shift of your of your job, your paying job, the second shift of coming home from the paying job to take care of the children, and the third shift is going out to a community me- meeting to talk to the lo- local city council representatives about um, cleaning up the, you know, the, the uh, uh, local uh, polluting facility. And so that kind of grassroots so-called community mothering, whether you're a mother or or not, or even whether you're a woman or not, was was this sense of collective responsibility that was deeply um, a part of the environmental justice organizing. That that sense of of you know collective care work to clean up and protect and preserve the environment so that um, the whole community can survive and thrive. It, it felt very, very much, it, it resonated with me very, very deeply. You know, lo- looking back, it, it was a natural and, and relevant and um, sort of uh, weaving together of these different parts of my life. One of the things that I've been exploring is um, the idea of creating movement workshops that are inspired by seaweed. The Move Like Seaweed workshop involves um, a few different parts. So the first part looks at the idea of um, the, the seaweed at the point where, or seaweeds at the point where they are not in the water. So seaweed that's at the like higher up on the beach in the intertidal zone and when the tide is out that it's kind of in this state of rest and uh, kind of um, flopped against a rock for example and drying out um, but even even seaweed that's low very low down in the um, the tidal flow um, when the when the tide is is much further out um, some of those kelps and so on they they're not moving as fast and they're not kind of um, able to move in quite the same way. So they kind of billow and float in, in a relatively static position. Um, and so, so the first thing that I do with people is, is ask people to find, a, considering the idea of the hold fast and the, the fact that seaweed kind of attaches itself in some way, I ask people to find a place on the beach that they feel like that, that holds them or can anchor them in some way. And then we explore the idea of resting there. And so it's, it's very much about being still. And then um, the second part of the, the workshop is to explore the idea of, um, of seaweed kind of moving through. Um, so we start with, for example, hands and then look at the idea of undulating. And so we explore the idea of undulating through the, the hand and wrist and arm. 
and then um, start to ripple that within the, into the rest of the body and then also look at undulation of the spine, um, both, both in kind of the horizontal plane and the vertical plane. The other part of the workshop is to sort of think about the symbolic dimension of seaweed. So what I ask people to consider is the fact that seaweed has this whole fast which anchors it in place, but it's, and that enables it to move freely. And then we talk about what aspects within our lives enable us to be rooted and anchored in some way, but have the freedom to move. It's about, um, trying to understand seaweed in a more human way um, as, a, as a way of creating empathy, really, because empathy for non-human, uh, non-mammalian organisms is really difficult to achieve because as humans, it's quite hard for us to have that sort of empathy for plants and or like, you know, cellular organisms, let's say. Um, but I think if you if you can kind of make those connections with people then i think the the whole discussion around climate change is more powerful because the effects on those kinds of organisms then can be more readily understood on a, on a somatic level rather than this kind of like abstract way imagining or, or re reconnecting or or um restoring our relationships with the ocean where where all life started and with seaweed or at least with cyanobacteria and and then the the these unicellular algae that that you know were were the um, beginnings of all life on on land as well um, I think that's a, a very powerful way of rethinking um, new, well, old, new imagine, imaginaries about human nature connection. So I, I think it, it's a it's a particular a particularly important set of understandings and 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 interconnections and and histories really um, that I think seaweed and and the marine you know, and, and marine algae in general um, awaken us to in, in many ways. So that that's my, I think that's my hope, is that kind of imagination of a way of co-conspiring together. Phytoplankton create uh, over 50% of the oxygen that we breathe. And of course, conspiring means from the Latin, breathing together. So I think imagining co-conspiring with seaweed um, and algae more generally, and the you know, and, and particularly in connection with with the marine environment, is um, is a way of reimagining our our relationships that we need we need to do in order to have collaborative survival on on our earth at this point. I hope you found these seaweedy conversations interesting and that perhaps they form the seeds of your own seaweed encounters. 
I'd like to say a huge thank you to my guests, Giovanna, Melody and Danny, for their time and generosity, and to Caribou Projects for inviting me to produce this podcast. If you're interested in finding out more about my project, visit unctuousbetweenfingers.co.uk for commissioned texts, creative responses by some of the artists, academics and scientists I've been working with, And here you can watch the moving image work I've made in response to the Ram Seaweed Collection. And there's also lots of additional resources to continue your seaweed journey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This episode was made possible thanks to funding from Arts Council England.